This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Everybody, welcome to tonight's public lecture. Uh, we have a very exciting lecture for you today um, on the topic of nutrition. Now, for all of you who haven't met me yet, uh, my name is Luz Pinto, and I'm the marketing and events uh, manager at the Center for Healthy Aging, as well as the Stein Institute for Research on Aging. Uh, we have been doing these lectures for just over 30 years, and I, I know some of you have been following us for at least a decade, so thank you so much if, if you are, have been following us for that long. And if you're newer to our group, welcome to the group. Now, um, uh, to tell you a little bit about our center and the work that we do, we focus on healthy aging and wellness um, as we age. Now, the way we try to accomplish our goal is we conduct research. We also uh, give training to the clinicians and researchers of tomorrow, everywhere from high school students all the way to medical students. And we try to do outreach. So we do a few different events, and I have to say this is uh, one of our um, longer-lasting outreach efforts, like I said, over 30 years. And our hope with these lectures is to bring researchers who are doing very exciting work and experts and clinicians and have them come to you and share what it is that you need to do to be healthy as you age. So for tonight's presentation, uh, we're honored to have Ms. Vicki Newman, who um, is a registered dietitian nutritionist, and she has many years of experience. Um, let me let me give her description and her words so that I, I say this correctly. She spe specializes in integrated and personalized approach to nutrition, health, and healing. She believes that food not only nourishes the body, but also nurtures the spirit and is essential for optimal functioning to be able to live with exuberance no matter our age. So I, I think that's just a fantastic approach. So without further ado, I invite everyone to welcome Ms. Vicki Newman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's just lovely to see you all here interested in this topic. Um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, not only as an aging, I like to say gracefully aging woman, but because heart disease was very prevalent in my family. Um, <clears throat> the information um, that I'm going to share with you tonight, I, I bet many of you have been reading lots about these things, but um, we're moving in a direction away from a focus on cholesterol, particularly, to um, more of a focus on inflammation and the role that inflammation plays in the health of our cardiovascular system. So um, if I use a term or say something that is hard to understand, can you just let me know and I'll try to clarify it? But there's also time for questions at the end. So it turns out that a substantial portion of heart disease events actually happens to people that have their lipids, their cholesterol and triglycerides in the normal range. And the research has been moving us in the direction of appreciating this role that inflammation plays in the whole disease process. <clears throat> and you've probably been reading that inflammation plays a role in most chronic diseases, 
including diabetes, um, cancer, um, and others. So just to reiterate, the, the modifiable risk factors that we are still paying attention to uh, and trying to keep in the normal range include lipids. <clears throat> um, diabetes is considered a very strong risk factor um, for heart disease. Obesity, but you're going to hear me talking more about the fat that we get around the middle as we get older. Um, and hypertension. Um, I'm going to be focusing on inflammation, but I'm also going to be mentioning the role of physical activity. Um, and then I think we also have to appreciate the role that stress um, plays in this disease process. So there's very good, um, I guess, consensus, you could say, um, that folks who have their low-density lipoprotein or LDL cholesterol above the magic number of 190 milligrams per deciliter um, and or who have diabetes um, are good candidates for statins. <clears throat> and I don't know how many of you are using statins or have been encouraged to use statins if your lipids are elevated, but um, the new guidelines that came out a couple of years ago have increased, it seems, considerably the number of people that have been encouraged to use statins to get their lipids into a more normal range. Um, because I'm a dietitian and interested in the role of diet and lifestyle, I'm going to be talking about the things that we can do to reduce <clears throat> our need for drugs, um, and even if we have to use a drug, to try to reduce the amount that we would need, because they often have side effects. So the, the um, emerging risk factors that have uh, been coming to light include the role of what we call LDL particle number. Um, have any of you had this advanced lipid testing done to determine particle number? Okay, so it's a few of you. So it's something that you might want to talk with your physician about. Um, <clears throat> it turns out that the small or more dense particles are the ones that they think are more related to risk. They're the ones that can burrow in to the lining of the blood vessels, um, causing damage <clears throat> that then can lead to placking. Um, and when the plaques become unstable, you know they lead to clots. There is another level that's being looked at, the ApoB level, um, and also the level of oxidized cholesterol. So the um, what are called advanced lipid testing have any of you heard this term NMR? Okay, that's one of the tests um, that your doctor can run. Um, in addition to that, um, we've been looking more at things like markers of inflammation. And those include C-reactive protein. Have any of you had your C-reactive protein? Okay. Um, and homocysteine, has anybody had that done? Okay. Um, both of those can indicate inflammation in the body. It may not be specific to the cardiovascular system. For example, if you're like me and you have knee problems, um, you can have inflammation from your joints. And so sometimes those are nonspecific measures. But interesting to, you know, have a discussion with your physician about these. And then um, genomics, we're having, we're getting a lot more information 
um, about the role of certain common defects um, that might increase our risk. And LP little a um, is the one that's very correlated to familial risk um, and oftentimes not that impacted um, by statins and other drugs. Um, APOE uh, tells something about how we metabolize fat. And have any of you had the test for um, MTHFR? Does that ring any bells? Uh, People that have that genetic or pretty common um, genetic variation might be running higher levels of homocysteine, and homocysteine can lead to damage to the blood vessels that can play a role in inflammation. So... um, That's just a little introduction to some of the things that we're paying more attention to in this area. So I mentioned about particle number, and um, it's, for a long time, I think we've appreciated that LDL, when it's elevated, is a challenge. Um, But if your LDL is not the small, dense type, it's not that correlated to risk. So you kind of want to find out particle number. If there's lots of particles, um, it means that you have more LDL in the dense form, and that's a a concern. Um, I wanted to point out a good resource. Do any of you get the UC Berkeley Wellness publications? Because every year they come out with a review of the latest information on cardiovascular risk and how it's impacted by lifestyle. And it's really a useful resource. So you can read more about a lot of these things in that publication. Um, One of the things that they reiterate is the importance of lifestyle change on reducing some of these risks. And so that's what I'm going to focus on for the rest of the talk. For those of you also that would like to read a good review article on statin pros and cons, I think this review article that was published in 2015 is useful. I don't know that I have that in your handout, but let me just tell you that it's from um, the Expert Review of Clinical Pharmacology 2015, and the first author is Diamond. And if any of these references that I've used in my slides are of interest to you and you'd like more details and you can't find them on the web, you can just email me and um, I'll send you the reference. Um, One of the points that um, this particular review article made is um, how statins don't impact particle size. um, So it's you really want to find out if you have the big fluffy types of LDL, which is lower risk versus the small dense ones. And um, this particular review article, again, really emphasized the importance of lifestyle um, in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk. So one of um, the reasons that I like us to try to do what we can with lifestyle is I think I think all of us realize that drugs have side effects, and so we want to reduce our need for drugs um, down to kind of the minimal amount. And I think we also need to appreciate that cholesterol is not really all bad. Um, Cholesterol is really important for cell structure, um, and low levels can actually impact um, your general energy level. 
Um, we use cholesterol to make steroid hormones, which are important for sexual functioning, bone health, and mental status. And um, also, I think it's good for us to remember that cholesterol is used by the liver to make bile acids, and they're necessary for fat digestion. So it's, you know, I think it's been kind of years that we've thought of cholesterol as being all bad, but we sort of need to put it into context. So I'm going to get back to cholesterol, but I, I do want to just tell you briefly um, the sorts of things that we can do to reduce general inflammation in the body. And I'm guessing you've probably been hearing a lot about this on the news and what you read. <clears throat> but if you think about an anti-inflammatory diet, um, it's basically a diet that's low in inflammatory fats, which we're going to talk about. Um, it tends to have fish or seafood um, on a regular basis, a few, two or three times a week. Um, it's very limited in sugar and refined carbohydrates. And um, it tends to be rich in colorful vegetables in particular, but also fruits and legumes. Um, and then there's also antioxidants that the body produces. As we get older, some of the levels of those antioxidants go down, and so sometimes a supplement of those is helpful. We'll also be talking about foods that are very rich in antioxidants, and they tend to be those that are, I'm always saying, big color and strong flavor, especially vegetables and fruits. So if we concentrate on fats and try to reduce inflammatory fats, we really need to think about the balance between what we call the pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory fats in our diet because what we eat becomes us. We are what we eat. Um, so the challenge that we have today is that we're, we get about 16 to 1 pro-inflammatory fats to anti-inflammatory fats. And we'd be much better off if our ratio was down to 4 to 1. So if you think about what is considered pro-inflammatory, it's um, omega-6 fatty acids, particularly those from things like corn and soy, cottonseed, safflower, um, and particularly those that have been exposed to air, like in high-fat fried foods, but also to think about what has changed in terms of the fat that's in the animals that we eat. Because animals that have been on pasture and are eating grass up till the time that they're killed and eaten have many more of these anti-inflammatory fats in them. When they go into a feedlot and are fed corn and soy, the type of fat in their carcass changes. The anti-inflammatory fats are the omega-3s. We think of those as our fish oils. Um, so we get them from fish and we get them from seafood, but we also get them from chia and from flax seeds. Um, and we get them from what are called pastured livestock. And this term you see on the slide says grass-finished. 
because any, if you look at beef and it says grass-fed, they can put that label on any kind of beef because it's all been grass-fed, okay? But the term that you want to look for is grass-finished, which means grass up till the time that it was killed and eaten. And think back, that's how much of our, you know, the animals that we ate 100 years ago, they all were basically, you know, on grass or on pasture until they were killed and eaten. So we've had a real change in the type of fats that are in our animal foods over the last 100 years. So the omega-3 fatty acids from fish and seafood it's recommended that we get two to three three-ounce servings per week. And um, we're trying to get about somewhere over 3,500 milligrams of these omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. And um, I always like to point out, and some of you have heard me give this talk before, um, but... I like to point people towards sardines as a really good, inexpensive source of these anti-inflammatory fats. And if you look at the sardine line, do you see how it says, you know, those tins of sardines, which are about three ounces worth? Um, If you look at the fact that some are in oil and some of them are in water, you're better choice is the ones that are tinned in water because when they're in oil, some of the healthy fat migrates into the oil and then we throw it away. Okay, if, if you eat it, <laughs> he was just saying that he eats it, then that's fine. Okay, so if you keep in mind that number of 3,500 milligrams um, of EPA and DHA per week to be heart healthy, um, then if you had a couple of tins of sardines in a week, you're almost there if you choose it in the water-packed variety. Um, Have any of you ever heard um, of Dr. T. Lodog, uh, who's wonderful and who's written some very... She's really wonderful, and she has written a few very useful practical books Um, and in her one of her books she recommends even a little bit more of these omega-3 fatty acids her recommendation is closer to 6,300 or about twice um, the other so so somewhere in that range and I guess I'd like to think of it as sort of sardine tins you know so like probably two to three sardine tins a week would do it for you. There are many other choices, fish and seafood, to give you those healthy fats. Um, But I encourage people to look at um, the Monterey Bay Aquarium and the other websites that are listed on the slide and also in your handout so that you choose the fish and seafood that's less likely to have contaminants. And always lower on the food chain is a general rule. There'd be less exposure to toxins. Okay? Now, some people don't eat fish and seafood, um, and they want to get their omega-3s, the anti-inflammatory fats, from plant foods. 
they can do that and you'll often hear uh, different things on the web or news reports that will tell you that you can get these from things like avocado and even from leafy greens and that is totally true it's just that you have to eat a whole lot more of them to get the same bioactive level as you would get in fish or seafood for people that are eating only plant foods and getting all their omega-3s from plants they just need to eat a larger volume and what you're seeing on this slide here is if you think about 500 milligram equivalent um, you're needing about three tablespoons of ground flaxseed, which some people, you know, they might have a smoothie every day and, and get their omega-3s from flax. So it's just to remember that you need a little more um, to get the biologically active amount. Um, it does take about 26 avocados um, <laughs> to get the equivalent of um, 500 milligrams of EPA and DHA. So, you know, Unless you have an avocado tree in your backyard, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Those are really healthy choices, and so are dark green leafy vegetables. Um, it's just that they're not as biologically active as the kind that we actually get in fish and seafood. So moving on to some of the things that we're really concerned about in terms of cholesterol levels, we still do need to be concerned about our intake of saturated fats and I think you all know that saturated fats are basically the ones that are hard at room temperature. And the more hard they are at room temperature, the more saturated they are. They, they still are considered a risk in terms of elevating blood lipids and therefore potentially increasing cardiovascular risk. But I'll tell you one of the things that we're appreciating is it's more the context in which they're eaten or found in a food. So if you think about how we get a lot of our saturated fat, it might come in the form of aged beef. And so what we have there is a lot of oxidized fats that probably are not good for blood vessel walls and or we might be getting these saturated fats in the form of desserts that are very high in sugar and refined carbohydrates. And what we're seeing in the literature as we move forward in this area of lifestyle and cardiovascular risk is much more emphasis on concern related to refined carbohydrates and sugar. So kind of think about saturated fats Think about them in the context in which they're eaten. Go easy on them, but in particular, go easy on the kind that are oxidized and or associated with a high-carbohydrate food or meal. So the next thing that always comes up is what about coconut oil? Coconut oil is definitely saturated. Um, it's definitely hard at room temperature. Um, the probably benefit of coconut oil is that it's from a plant, not from an animal. So it's lower on the food chain and less likely to bring environmental toxins into the body. So that's a good thing. Um, it's interesting that 
this current research is showing that it can raise LDL cholesterol, but it does it to a lesser extent than butter. So I think we still need to be careful of dairy fats, um, but we also should realize that coconut oil is like not, you know, okay at any amount, okay? Um, but it's really thinking about coconut oil in the context of the entire meal that we're eating. In terms of the type of cholesterol in food that we need to really be concerned about is oxidized cholesterol. And in this particular study that was published in 2010, um, they reported that about 12% of the dietary cholesterol eaten on an average um, is oxidized. And this adds to oxidative stress in the body, potentially damage to the the blood vessel lining, which then can develop into placking. Um, I don't think I explained this earlier, and I think some of you already know this, but when we get oxidative damage to the lining of the blood vessels, um, the body wants to sort of plaster over the damaged area, and it does that with this cholesterol-like substance. You can kind of think of it like scar tissue, and then over time that can become calcified and hardened. So it's really a process that our body goes through, and if we kind of pull back and try to minimize oxidative damage, we minimize, you could say, the scratching or irritation on the blood vessel lining that ultimately can end up in this scarring. So getting back to oxidized cholesterol, um, where do we find it? We find it in aged meats and cheeses, um, for one thing. So I always tell people, if you're going to eat cheese, you know, think of it kind of like the French did, that it's like a treat and it's sort of something delicious and occasional and you sort of have it for dessert. Um, But really, go easy on it. And in terms of aged meats, I mean, that's, you know, people often go for a steak, you know, that's kind of been aged nicely. So those are the reasons that we try to cut down those kind of as far as possible in the diet and minimize them. If you can avoid them, that's probably even better. Um, Deli meats, bacon, and sausages are all very high in oxidized cholesterol and oxidized fats in general. So they add to oxidative damage that then can potentially affect the blood vessel lining. So I think you've also heard this term trans fats or hydrogenated fats. And it turns out that they're even more damaging to our blood vessel linings than naturally saturated fat. Um, They contribute to what they call low-grade systemic inflammation in the body. They promote this Uh, what we call abdominal obesity, or this kind of fat that starts to gather around the middle. And this fat around the middle is, um, it it tends to create more inflammatory compounds. 
So we really want to do what we can to, you know, not allow that middle age spread to um, get going. Um, some studies show that a very small increase in trans fats um, can actually cause a very significant increase in heart disease. And you can see that a little, very tiny amount, I mean, four grams um, of trans fat in an 1,800-calorie diet can cause a 26 or 23% increase in heart disease risk. So do you all know also we sometimes can find trans fat on our food labels now, but the food labeling laws say that they can list a food as zero amount of trans fat if it has less than 0.5 grams in it. So a lot of times the food manufacturers manipulate a serving size to be right under that, but what happens is we might eat many more than one serving, and so you know we might be falsely feeling okay that that food is all right. So just to be aware of that. The, the major problems are actually um, the deep fat fried fast food that we eat. I'm guessing none of you in this room do that, <laughs> okay? Um, we do have, however, family members who do that, and that is a real concern. Um, also, bakery products and packaged snacks um, tend to be high in these trans fats because they're stable. They don't get rancid as easily, and so they have a long shelf life. Um, this one study that I highlighted on the slide got my attention um, because, and this was a pretty interesting study by D'Souza, who's, who's written a few other pretty useful studies to read. And um, in this particular study that was reported in 2015, um, they found that industrial produced, in other words, um, hydrogenated fat, kind of like Crisco, um, but not trans fats that are found in dairy products, was the type that was associated with disease risk. So there are some trans fats just naturally in dairy fats, um, just to be aware of that. And that's why, you know, being careful of dairy fat is a good thing. Oh, and I, I just think I have friends that really love popcorn. And, you know, they feel very, you know, good about eating it because it is a source of fiber. But some of these popcorns that we can get at movie theaters or the kind that are microwavable can have quite a substantial amount of trans fats in them to just be aware and to pay attention to the labels. So if you see this one on the left, which is called Popcorn A, um, that one seems to be okay. It has, you know, pretty low amounts of fat in it, only two grams in half a bag. That's the other thing. I mean, who, ate, who eats half the bag? So, you know, just to be aware how that can be a little confusing. But popcorn B actually had substantially more fat, 14 grams. Um, again, now this was in 
five and a half cups. So again, you have to figure how many did you have. Um, but there were five grams of trans fat in that amount of popcorn. So I think sometimes we just have to you know, pay a little bit more attention to our labels. Um, and luckily, we do have some information available to us that helps us make better choices. So for years, I've been saying that eggs are, you know, safe to eat. And I'm very happy to tell you that the dietary guidelines this year that was published well in 2015 actually now say that it's okay to eat eggs and that the cholesterol in our diet um, isn't necessarily related to the cholesterol in our body. Um, in a certain, you know, healthy range. So in this particular, what they call meta-analysis, and this was looking at 17 studies in eight articles. Um, in other words, a total of 3 million person years were observed. Um, higher consumption of eggs, up to one per day, was not associated with an increased risk of heart disease or stroke. So... That was up to an egg a day, which is seven eggs a week. You know, so again, it kind of, I think what we're being told is moderation is fine. And I always like to think about the context in which eggs are eaten. Um, if we had a hard-boiled egg, um, and we had that in the context of, say, a healthy salad, um, or you know, you might have a poached egg on some whole grain toast in the morning. Or lately, I've been liking to just wilt down a little bit of those, um, you know, the baby greens that they have that are so easy. They're in the package. You can just wilt those down, and then um, you can basically, oh, um, you can just cook a couple of eggs on top of that, you know, barely adding any additional olive oil to that, or maybe none. Um, so it's really thinking about the context in which we eat eggs that I think makes a difference in terms of cardiovascular risk. On the other hand, if you think about some of these um, breakfasts that we can get out, um, they're sort of filled with so many things that can lead to heart disease risk that it's a little bit hard to separate out, you know, is it the egg that was the problem, or is it the refined carbohydrate, the sugar that was in the sweet roll? Um, is it the cheese that had the oxidized fat? You know, and a lot of the studies that we had were looking at food frequency um, data on diet, and you sometimes couldn't separate out the context of, like, you know, an egg meal um, in terms of what else was there that might have been a problem. So, again, moderation, variety, choosing our fats carefully is a good thing for, for heart disease um, prevention and control. Um, I would say huge amount of emphasis lately on being more aware of carbohydrates and sugar intake, blood sugar control, and its relationship to cardiovascular risk. It turns out that adults with diabetes are two to four times more likely to have heart disease or stroke than folks without diabetes. And in particular, they're much more prone to have 
um, problems with blood vessels that get blood to their periphery. And that's why you see people that sometimes have to have toes cut off or sometimes limbs. Um, you probably know people that have had problems um, with prediabetes or diabetes being put on metformin, which is a very common drug prescribed to folks that are having trouble controlling their blood sugar. But recently at a journal um, club or journal article discussion that we had here at UCSD with medical students, we were talking about this now they call classic study that was done you know, back in the day, 2002, which doesn't seem that long ago. But the Diabetes Prevention Program reported that actually lifestyle changes that included a healthy diet um, were more effective at reducing diabetes than metformin. And yet, you know, somehow we've kind of lost that along the way. And I think it's because we find it, there's a sense of, oh, well, people aren't going to do, you know, the healthy diet. And so we might as well just give them a drug. But I think it's good to realize that, that making a change in the way we eat and the amount of exercise we do can make a huge difference. Um, and we may not, we might be able to reduce drug use or perhaps get by without it if we can control through lifestyle. So in terms of this whole issue of blood sugar control um, and cardiovascular risk, have you all heard this term high glycemic load? Okay, so um, these are foods that cause blood sugar to go up rapidly causing insulin to get elevated. And then, have any of you experienced that where you get like a low blood sugar reaction, you know, and you have a drop? Um, But foods that are high in refined carbohydrates and also including sugar, and particularly sugar, um, tend to cause um, elevations in insulin. When your insulin levels are high, you tend to store fat more easily. We kind of call it a fat storage hormone. And there's also this relationship between blood sugar control and fat around the middle or waist circumference. And again, this fat around the middle is very strongly correlated to inflammatory fats and systemic inflammation, all of which, you know, not only can make us not feel well, but can be affecting our, um, our blood vessels as well. Um, one of the very best ways of reducing our risk of diabetes and insulin resistance, um, which when you're insulin resistant, It means that you have to keep inching your insulin levels up, up, up because your body is resistant to it. Um, Weight control is one of the very best ways of getting a handle on this. And the body mass index that's recommended is 25 or less. You can go on the web and find out what yours is. But I think one of the things that's really good to keep in mind is it's it's almost less about the total amount of weight as it is the quality of the weight. Um, There are people that look quite thin, 
but they can have a very substantial fat mass. And when you have a lot of fat on your body, despite weight, um, you are more resistant to insulin, meaning your insulin levels have to go up. Um, And that is an issue in terms of not only blood sugar control and diabetes, but seems to also elevate um, your risk of having lipid levels that get out of the normal range. It has an impact on blood pressure control as well. Um, And just quickly, I don't see anybody here who needs to lose substantial amounts of weight, but if you know people that get worried about their weight, um, it's really good to remind people not to lose weight too quickly. Two or three pounds weight loss in a week is about all the body can handle uh, in the sense of you store toxins from the environment in your fat. And when you suddenly are dumping lots, you know, using a lot of your stored fat for energy, you could be dumping a lot of those toxins into your bloodstream. And you might overwhelm your body's ability to handle those, which can, in turn, potentially do damage to your tissue, maybe increasing your risk of things like cancer. Um, So slow and steady in the right direction. And you see the woman lifting weights there. Um, And I always tell myself that. I look at that picture and go, do more with your upper body, Vicki. (laughs) Because, you know, we might be good at doing our walking, even walking up hills to get kind of, you know, exercising to huffy puffy. But um, I think a lot of us are probably not doing enough with our upper body to, you know, increase our muscle mass. And um, it's not just losing fat, it's increasing muscle that gives us more metabolically active tissue in our body, which will end up making us feel better because more metabolically active tissue means, I like to think of more mitochondria. Have you heard of this term? So they're the little engines in our cells, and they have a lot to do with energy production and how energetic we feel. So there's lots of good reasons to um, reduce our fat mass and increase what we call lean body mass. So I'm a dietitian, so you knew I was going to talk about fruits and vegetables, right? Uh, <laughs> It turns out that fiber-rich foods are very protective and important with regard to cardiovascular health. And um, you notice I didn't just say fiber. I said fiber-rich foods because fiber-rich foods bring in so much more than fiber. They bring in all these protective compounds, lots of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds. And they also, there's really two kinds of fiber. There's soluble and insoluble fiber. You know, insoluble you could think of as kind of like bran. You know, it sort of acts like a brush and kind of like increases peristalsis and helps us, um, you know, have normal bowel function. Um, But the soluble fiber is what we call the gelling fiber, And it's really pretty important to keeping our cholesterol level in a healthier range um, in terms of cardiovascular health. Um, The other thing is that fiber, in general, 
tends to lower or normalize blood sugar rise after a meal. So even if you are going to be eating carbohydrate, if your meal has sufficient amounts of fiber in it, in addition to some healthy fat and a little protein to be more balanced, you're not going to have that huge rise in blood sugar after a carb, you know, meal with carb, and then potentially, you know, lots of insulin and then the dipping down. Um, we already know, I think, that fiber-rich foods make us feel full on fewer calories. Um, but some of you have heard me talk about this before. We're getting so much fascinating stuff now about the uh, gut microbiome and its impact on overall health, including cardiovascular health. And it turns out that fiber, especially the soluble types of fiber, act as a food for the healthy gut bacteria. And that is probably a very beneficial thing for lots of reasons, including cardiovascular health. So if you think about what is the amount of fiber that we need in the day, the goal right now is we're encouraged to get 25 to 40 grams or more of fiber in every day. And it's about 14 grams per 1,000 calories for those of you that count calories. But really try to be on the higher side of that if you can and realize that every half cup, more or less, cut up vegetable or cut up fruit is going to give you about three grams of fiber. And one of those grams is going to be soluble fiber. And it's the same for fruit. And it's really very similar for whole grains. Um, Legumes are super rich in fiber, and they actually give you seven grams of fiber in every half cup cooked. So, you know, if you like black beans or pinto beans or garbanzo bean, um, bean stews and soups, um, that is a very nourishing choice. What people often ask is, what constitutes a whole grain? And um, what you want to look for to determine if it's really a whole grain is whole, sprouted, or malted as a first ingredient. Um, You'll notice that there's some pretty, again, confusing labeling, because if you look at that bread label on the bottom, it says whole grain wheat, okay? But when you actually read the label, it doesn't list whole, sprouted, or malted as a first ingredient. Okay, So that would tell you that you're actually not getting a truly, mostly whole grain. Um, And the other thing you can look at is, is it providing three grams of fiber per serving or per slice? Now, if you look at the bottom right, um, this was a study that I just ran across in doing the lit review for this talk. And it got my attention because um, in this particular study, they actually, and it was a pretty nicely done um, study, um, they found that vegetables, fruits, and beans were a better choice because folks that increased their whole grain consumption actually um, didn't, it didn't affect their 
uh, blood biochemistry, body composition, or gut um, microbiology. So um, I have been gently encouraging people not to overdo grains, even if they're whole grains, because they're still carb, and there can still be a problem with insulin and blood sugar control. So if you're going to do grains, it's, you know, do whole grains, but then just go easy on the amount that you have um, to actually do the best you can for your cardiovascular system. And how many of you got told by your moms that an apple a day keeps the doctor away? Well, it's really true. Um, You know, for one thing, apples are very rich in soluble fiber. Um, And they also are a source of polyphenols. Um, You hear about flavonoids, and we'll talk more about those. But um, you know that layer, if you... You know, if you bite into an apple, there's like a kind of yellow color that's sort of right under the skin. Have you ever noticed that? So anyway, that's the flavonoids, which are, you know, the ones that you're always told are, you know, eat chocolate and red wine to get your flavonoids. But you also get it in apples. And um, it turns out that this particular study that was published last year um, found that... um, eating apples actually was very helpful in terms of uh, promoting a healthier gut biome that then impacted potentially um, cholesterol levels but also inflammatory substances in the body. And we're finding, and it's just, I mean, there's so many articles written, it's really hard to keep up in this area. And have any of you heard Rob Knight speak? Because he... He actually was recruited here to UCSD to join the faculty, and he heads up the American Gut Project, which is um, doing fascinating um, work looking at bi- the, the bacterial life that lives on our bodies and in our bodies. And um, you can hear him. He does a TED Talk about this. It's really interesting. Okay, so in terms of eggs... Um, I already talked about, you know, what to consider with regard to eggs. But it turns out um, that sugar is now considered much more important to reduce in terms of cardiovascular health than cutting down on eggs or even cutting down on dietary cholesterol. Um, The risk doubles if sugar makes up 20% of our calories So if you just took somebody, we'll pick 2,000 calories, um, that would be 400 calories that are coming from sugar. And I like to think of it in something I can actually visualize. So that's like 25 teaspoons of sugar. And everybody would say, like, no way, okay? Um, But it turns out that the average American in 2010 was consuming 19 teaspoons of added sugar. So if you think about that's an average, and there's people below that and above it, I'm sure that there's a whole lot of people that are getting at least that amount. Um, This particular study that was reported in JAMA a couple of years ago um, looked at 40,000 people um, and accounted for all other potential risk factors, including total calories, diet quality, smoking, cholesterol, high blood pressure, obesity, and they still found that sugar was like the biggest driver 
of cardiovascular risk. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, I think we have a pretty good idea of where we're getting sugar, but keep in mind again, you know, that 25 teaspoons that everybody said no way. Um, but look at where you could pick it up. Um, one place that people think is sort of a healthy choice would be flavored yogurts. They can have 11 teaspoons in them, <laughs> okay? So I'm just asking you to pay more attention to the sugar that's listed on your food label. And um, I would really encourage people not to be using flavored yogurts. Um, I think a plain yogurt is still a healthy food. Put your own fruit on it. Um, and kind of go on down, another one that kind of got my attention was Heritage Flakes, which are a whole grain flaked cereal that Trader Joe's sells. And, you know, I would think of that as a healthy choice. Whole grain is the first ingredient, but it also had the equivalent of, of four teaspoons of sugar, and that was in a quarter cup. So, you know, I might have a whole cup before I was thinking about that and really paying attention to my label. So it, it, it's surprising how quickly the sugar adds up. Um, this particular study, this was actually just this year, and um, they actually showed a relationship between sugar-sweetened sodas and coronary artery calcification. Um, and so this, in this case, it was those people that were getting uh, five or more sugar-sweetened carbonated beverages per week. Think about the people you know, you know, that that's not that hard to imagine that some people are, are getting that amount that could really be, you know, doing damage. In this case, um, these were uh, mean age 40, so, you know, people younger than that and older, but that means that even younger people are getting cardiovascular damage um, early in life. So the biggest concern is sugar-sweetened beverages because the sugar can be by itself without the kind of modulating impact of fiber at the same time, a little bit of healthy fat, and some protein. And I just want you, I think we already know that things like colas are a problem, but how many of you know people that go to Whole Foods and get naked green machine, you know, and it's like, that's healthy, right? But it has 14 teaspoons of sugar equivalent in it. Um, there's that, um, I, I, do you say fuse? Anyway, there's some of these like healthier beverages that people buy, and they aren't really looking at the label. And there's, again, kind of confusing, because it'll say like, you know, half a cup of this has only this much sugar, but like who's drinking half a cup? You know, the bottle is like 16 ounces. And then the other thing are the flavored um, coffee drinks, where you can really pick up a lot of sugar. Um, so just to be aware of those things. So the dietary guidance for 2015, again, no limit on cholesterol from the diet, um, but they are very strongly recommending a limitation on saturated and trans fats down to, five, they say 10%. There are, the American Heart Association would actually say less than that, like 5%. And so, again, if you say 10% of calories, you're taking in 1,800 calories. And I'm just going to have you, like, look at me, okay? Like, I would be taking in 1,800 calories, okay? 
somebody my size. So use that as a general idea. So <clears throat> that's about 180 calories would be my max in terms of saturated and trans fat, which would be the equivalent of 20 grams of saturated fat. And again, you know, we do have food labels, so you can check, okay, and see. But if you don't want to worry about food labels, then what you want to do is just go easy on meats, beef, lamb, pork, but even poultry and eggs. You just have to, like, not overdo it. Um, the guidance is 26 ounces a week or about three to four ounces a day. <clears throat> and so think about what that would mean. If you were going to have two eggs for breakfast, that means you get one to two other ounces somewhere in the day. You know, that could be one little ounce of turkey on a sandwich and then maybe another ounce barely in a stew that had mostly veggies okay so it's it's doable you just have to kind of think about it a bit um <clears throat> and especially to reduce red and processed meat because of that oxidized cholesterol and fat and then to keep the sugars down to 10 percent of calories as we already talked about so I'm going to quickly try to run through some of these antioxidant protective compounds that are found in the body and that we get in the diet. Alpha-lipoic acid, the body makes, but as we get older, we don't make as much. So you might want to take a supplement of that. Uh, CoQ10, we also make it, but as we get older, we don't make as much. So some people take a little extra of that. And then um, glutathione peroxidase, uh, the body will make it, but you have to have the trace element selenium. And um, melatonin, you know, we, that's a good reason to go out and get a little sunlight. Um, that's also a, something, an antioxidant that our body makes. But I'm going to emphasize more of the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory compounds that we get in our diet. Um, the flavonoids, as you heard in the lecture last month on chocolate, um, chocolate is one of the most delicious sources of flavonoids. But basically, fruits and vegetables, even grains, if you have any of you had imperial rice, they call it black rice, okay, um, that actually has some flavonoids in it as well. But color is what you're looking for and flavor. Um, these antioxidants can reduce. Um, LDL uh, cholesterol oxidation, and that's the stuff that does damage to the blood vessels. Um, it, these foods also have compounds in them that are called salicylates, which is, that's what aspirin comes from. So very, I think of them as really low-dose aspirin, okay, which is kind of good to keep the blood flowing. Um, and they promote relaxation of the blood vessels to improve blood flow and generally are anti-inflammatory. So where do we get flavonoids? We get them from colorful fruits and vegetables, and we all know about berries. Um, but in addition, there's many other things, cherries, um, citrus. Did you see capers on that? I always like to point out capers because only a tablespoon of capers 
which you might add as a flavoring, is pretty high in flavonoids. And then one of my favorites that I've been using a lot making soups and stews recently is parsley. Hugely, hugely rich in these protective compounds. A tablespoon. And how many of us, you know, we would... You could even get a little bit from the garnish that's on your plate, but you could also, you know, add a lot of it to some kind of stew or soup and add a lot of flavonoids to it in that way. Um, Your dark chocolate is much higher in these flavonoids than, than your milk chocolate, and then your red wines are much higher too. And both green and black tea are very, very high. Um, carotenoids are also very protective so again go for color I'm going to sort of scoot through those because we're running out of time Um, the dark green leafy vegetables are some of your very best choices they're rich in carotenoids especially lutein um, but also very rich in things like magnesium that are important to kind of relax the blood vessels Um, potassium that's important to protect from high blood pressure. Um, Vitamin C is very important, found in fruits and vegetables. Um, And other important nutrients include calcium, magnesium, D. Some of you have been hearing about vitamin K. So you all know where we get vitamin K. Dark green leafy vegetables, dairy products, okay, as well. And then I said vitamin E complex. We get very focused on alpha-tocopherol, but it turns out that, you know how you've been reading studies on the importance of eating nuts? That's why we had nuts as a snack tonight. So when you eat nuts, you get a little bit of fiber, but you also get all of the different vitamin E compounds, the tocopherols and the tocotrienols. And then there's trace elements that play a role. Some of you have heard that calcium is a problem, and some of these studies, I think, were a little misleading because um, they talked about supplementary calcium being a danger, and they didn't seem to take into consideration that some people were getting calcium in their food and then taking 1,000 milligrams of calcium in addition. So the guidance in terms of cardiovascular health is get enough calcium, which for all of us over the age of 50 is about 1,200 milligrams a day. And consider first what you're getting in food and only then add supplements if you need it. But there's no evidence that using calcium in the right amount is a danger in terms of um, cardiovascular health. Okay, Um, I'm... Fast forwarding, because don't forget moderate physical activity, even though we're talking mostly about diet. Um, Keep your eye on the microbiome connection. Just fascinating stuff that we're finding out there. Um, Big impact on body mass index, on insulin resistance, on our lipid levels, and um, also some other fascinating Lots of fascinating things, so just keep an eye on that. And whenever I look into these um, different areas on chronic disease, did any of you know Paul Brenner? Love that man. You know, for those of you um, that haven't run into him yet, he was a professor here for many years, 
a wonderful physician. I think he's still on the faculty here um, and also a practicing psychologist. He wrote a book many years ago called Health is a Question of Balance. And whenever I review literature in these chronic diseases, I always come back to that, that whole balance of body, mind, and spirit as being really important. So I just, let's kind of get to the bottom line. If we want to reduce inflammation and reduce our risk of cardiovascular disease, we need to avoid excess weight, but especially think about abdominal obesity and try to reduce that by reducing sugar and refined carbohydrate. Uh, Reduce fatty foods, especially those that are fried. Um, I try to avoid salad dressing almost completely if I can and just put things like avocado in a salad. Um, Go really easy or minimize um, your sweets. Try to make sure you get seafood several times a week. Avoid sweetened beverages and eat plenty of colorful fruits and vegetables. I'd like to um, lift up Michael Pollan, who has so much wisdom, and he said, eat food rather than edible food-like substances. (laughs) (laughs) And he also, um, and I would say, eat mostly plant foods. Um, More color and flavor means more protective bioactive compounds. Um, Your portions matter, and I like to remind us of the 80-20 rule, It's what you do 80% of the time that matters, and if you're going to blow it, blow it with quality stuff. Um, Slow down and savor, and I like to add practice gratitude. So I'm going to end by telling you that um, I wrote a book called Food for Thought, Healing Foods to Savor. I have a few copies up here if anybody's interested. It has basic nutrition information and healthy recipes in it sells for $20, and the proceeds go to support the healthy eating program at the Moore's Cancer Center, where I used to work before I retired. So thank you all for your attention, and um, I'm going to end it now, but I'll take questions. Um, So thank you. You didn't mention oatmeal. That's one. Okay. Bananas. I sweeten with bananas for smoothies. Okay. Okay, so let me see if I got that right. So I didn't mention oatmeal. So let me just say that oatmeal is rich in soluble fiber. So and it falls into the whole grain category. And if you have any problems with gluten intolerance, you can get gluten-free oatmeal. So that would be a suggestion. Um, I add soluble fiber when I'm making oatmeal by adding oat bran which is a good source of soluble fiber, and it also makes a creamy oatmeal. And by the way, I put turmeric in my oatmeal. You know turmeric, which is a major component of curry, and it's uh, quite anti-inflammatory? Not bad at all, and uh, you can make sort of golden oats, I call them. Um, But you have to add a little bit of milk to that to make it tolerable, and a little bit of cinnamon and some maybe raisins, or you could add, she asked about banana. So that's a good question about fruit, because we worry about sugar, but again, we're worried about it sort of by itself. So a fruit is not, as long as you're not, you know, 
eating pounds and pounds of it. But a fruit is generally never a concern because it's sort of the whole package that also has fiber in it. Um, when you juice a fruit, however, that's a little bit of a concern because you've taken the fiber away. So your banana is a good sweetener, like you were mentioning. And your third question was? Which oil is best? So I'm still a big fan of extra virgin olive oil, and um, I really encourage people to buy California um, olive oil rather than imported because I think we probably have better control over the quality when it comes from here, plus it's more ecological not to bring it from far, far away. Um, But any one that's extra virgin. And while we're talking about oil, one just to reiterate why it's good, it's very rich in monounsaturated fats, and they're considered some of the most heart-healthy of fats. So if you're going to use it, that's a good one to choose. Um, you want you like the ones that are a little bit naturally green, and when you put it on your tongue, it should have a little bit of a sting to it. The little bit of a sting... Um, is actually a compound that is considered protective. Okay, so, okay. What was the next person? Yeah. I'm listening and I understand, but there are nothing said about really reversing chronic diseases by diet, and why does there appear to be a fear to say you can reverse chronic kidney disease? cardiac, diabetes, cholesterol, simply by diet. Okay, so she's asking about reversing chronic disease, and um, it's true that the the more careful we are with our diet, the more we can um, go back and kind of fix things. But in some cases, things have gone beyond that. So, you know... She's asking if it's possible to, like, be perfect in our diet and actually reverse. We can certainly get a lot healthier, and we can reduce progression, definitely. And many people have actually been able to get well, and we know of some of those. Uh-huh. Uh, the diabetes you were talking about, is that type 2 only or type 1? How does the type 1? E- either, either one, it's definitely a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. The one that's more common and on the rise is type 2, which is the one that is much more easily controlled by diet. But if you have type 1... Diet can make a huge difference also in risk. Okay? Yes? I'm sorry, but I don't agree with your point of view on eggs. Because um, (coughs) if you would read the Nautilus book, Spectrum, uh, you know, it's very clear, looking at all the studies on eggs, a lot of the studies that tell us eggs are good for us are paid for by the egg industry. So the lobby is very strong. I used to think that eggs were good, and I would eat egg every day. No more. I won't even touch an egg today. And the reason is because on your slides you showed uh, things like TMAO. Well, eggs have two components, the, the, uh, the egg yolk and the egg white. Mm-hmm. The egg yolk is actually about 215 to 230 milligrams of cholesterol. And there's no question if you eat that, your cholesterol is going to go up. <clears throat> Second, the egg white 
is probably the richest source of choline. And choline in the body, you talked about the gut microbiome. <coughs> the gut microbiome will change that into, again, on your slide, PMAO. PMAO is the most inflammatory causing substance. Mm -hmm. So you take this egg part, you're going to produce a lot of PMAO. And the PMAO causes strokes, causes heart attacks, and it's inflammatory. Okay, so Dr. Lim, I'm going to stop you there because I think he's making some really important points. And this is the new literature that's coming out on the... So his point was that eggs, um, through their connection to the gut biome and some of these compounds that get made by the gut bacteria, can create more damaging substances. Um, so that's a big topic, and maybe we should have a point-counterpoint later, okay? Um, I still, from what I see in reading the literature on eggs, feel really comfortable having eggs as long as they're not slathered in fat and eaten in a high-fat context. And in terms of the connection between eggs, um, phosphatidylcholine, choline, and um, the gut microbiome, I think that's an evolving literature, and um, I've seen some things that indicate that there might even be competitive inhibition. So can we keep an open mind about that? And we'll just agree to disagree for the time being. Okay? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, about the vegetables and the fruit, um, raw or cooked as well? So the fresher, the better in terms of um, some of especially the, the less stable compounds like vitamin C. Um, and it's really the important thing is getting the fruits and vegetables in, fresher being better. Um, we had a discussion before we started about um, fresh versus frozen. And sometimes if you can't really get fresh, frozen is the next best choice in terms of nutrient adequacy. Um, for the minerals, it doesn't matter. For the vitamins, they're a little less stable, and the fat-soluble are more stable than the water-soluble, so fresher is better. And then I kind of like this concept of warmed-up raw, so um, try not to overcook your vegetables unless you're putting them into a super stew where you're going to eat the whole thing because we do lose some nutrients in the water that then gets, you know, thrown away. So uh, undercooking, you know, that's the kind of thing where stir-frying or just steaming comes in as being beneficial. Okay, so... Coconut oil uh, is, a, is a saturated fat, and so it is an issue in terms of lipid control, but it's, if you use it in moderation and if you don't use it in a meal or in a diet that's high in refined carbohydrates and other kinds of rancid fats, it's probably okay to use it. It's, you know, we go through these periods where we think that there's like, you know, the, a special food and we're sort of in the coconut is the answer to everything period. Um, it's you can use coconut oil, but it's still a saturated fat, so you still have to be go easy. Does it saturate more when it's 
cooking? No, it is just hard as it can be at room temperature, and that tells you that it is saturated. It doesn't, yeah, it's actually a stable one to cook with. So, um, okay. I'm going to, it's hard to see over here, but were there any questions over on this side? Okay, uh huh. The difference in nutrition between a hard-boiled egg and a poached egg, I think of them as being very similar. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, anything else? What would be, like, per week? That really depends, you know. It, I gave you the general guidelines on sugar, um, and if you think about, that's really a hard one to answer. Um, I I like it. Really depends the context. Some people are vegetarians and they have to eat more carbohydrate foods like beans for protein, so they get carbs that way. So it's really the context in which they're eating. Like sweet potatoes, would that be better than a regular potato? Yes, because it has more fiber in it, and it also is colorful. Okay? She asked about sweet potatoes being better than, yeah, white potatoes. Anybody else? Uh Uh-huh. And I blog on these topics um, sometimes, and so you can also look on my website, and there's other lectures that I've given. The videos are on my website. Um, there's information not on, so much on specifically on this topic, but in the book that I wrote. Um, and, for example, this question about calcium and hardening of the arteries, I actually did a blog on that. So if you go to my blog and you put in calcium and heart disease, that blog will come up and you can read it. So that might be useful. Uh-huh. Yes. Does margarine have a place in your dietary plan? No. <laughs> And so he asked about margarine, and what's the problem with margarine? It, it's, been, it's been hydrogenated, right? It, they start out with a liquid oil and add hydrogen to make it hard or plastic at room temperature. I actually, um, I make a kind of spread that I, this is blasphemous, but it's like organic butter, half and half with extra virgin olive oil. And then that's a spread that I use. But the other thing is that you can dip bread in extra virgin olive oil with balsamic vinegar. So there's some other ways of, you know, kind of playing around with that. Okay. Was there another question over here? Uh huh. I uh, I'm a vegetarian and have been for a long time. Uh, and I uh, I eat uh, very a uh, few whole grains, mm-hmm. uh, I mean processed foods. Uh-huh. And uh, nowadays, we're, there are two or three things I'm concerned about. One is uh, they're introducing some uh, non-dairy milks, like almond milk, soy milk, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, finding out the some pros and cons about them is a new journey in my diet. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how a nutritionist like you uh, deals with those things. Do you explore those? Do you so he's asking about milk substitutes like um, coconut 
type milks, um, rice milk, are you talking about almond milk? Um, I, I spend a lot, I counsel patients and I spend a lot of time talking with them when they choose to use milk substitutes about how to make sure, first of all, to find out why they're needing a milk substitute. In other words, do they need a whitener in their coffee? Um, is it, are they doing it for calcium? There are some almond milks that have absolutely no calcium in them. So you really need to pay attention to the food labels. And you'll notice that I ended by saying food rather than food products. So I'm kind of leery of a lot of these food products that have replaced real food. And honestly, if we could make our own almond milk, if that's the way you want to go, I... I feel more comfortable about that. Um, many of these fluid milk replacements have carrageenan and some other things added to them some, so that sometimes can really upset the stomach. And, um, and, and so I, I'm a food, not food product person, if that answers your question. Okay? Okay. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, he, he's asking about diet sodas, and there's some very interesting and important literature uh, talking about the damage these do to the healthy gut biome. So I would very, very much encourage you not to be using artificial sweeteners. They're really, really not good for the healthy bacteria in your stomach. Okay? Yes. Cover, uh, cover stevia, things like that? And there's less information available about stevia. Most of the studies showing detriment are from other, you know, the, the more, you know, the ones we've had around for a long time. Um, stevia comes, though, from a plant. You, I don't know how many of you grow it in your garden, but it looks like mint. And if you want to really use stevia in its healthiest form, it would be actually putting a stevia leaf into your tea, which can sweeten it naturally, and then you're getting kind of the other benefits from the leaf, like magnesium as well. So I think that'll be our last question, but thank you all for coming, and thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.